You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. If you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put... He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall a righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can turn to John chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.
Father, there is today in this text something, something so precious that we can hardly conceive of the weight and the beauty and the need that's answered in John's confession this morning. So, so Father, I pray that you, you would help us by your spirit to come and find beautiful and more desirable than anything in the world the words spoken here. That we'd count them as glorious and good and the most precious thing in all the world. Come. In your name we pray. Amen. There is at the heart of what Advent is all about the necessity of a certain kind of humility. Um, Advent is, uh, ha- has been misunderstood for, for many, many years. First, um, kind of in a, a culture that um, basically fills the season with just kind of trite surface level happiness. Um, it doesn't contain for, for much of the world uh, the weight of joy. Instead, it is uh, largely scary Santa men um, sitting in thrones in shopping malls. Uh, it is lights and blow up snowmen in yards. Um, it is simply the shopping season prior to Christmas um, and kind of the preparations that are involved there. And so there has been kind of a trivialization of uh, what Advent is and how Advent builds to the season of Christmas. But there's also been on the other side kind of a, um, a misunderstanding of the nature of Advent itself. That, that, um, a- Advent is a season of longing. Advent is a season of, of darkness, kind of groaning for the light. Um, but oftentimes Christians, particularly historically, have taken the season of Advent um, as a penitential season, which is right, a season of repentance and preparation, um, but not seen at the heart of Advent um, it is longing, is waiting, is anticipating, um, but above that and underneath that it is a kind of celebrating the promises of God given to us in that season of longing. And so we either have trivialized this season of Advent, um, making it primarily about shopping and lights and blow up, uh, uh, blow up snowmen, or, or, or we have left it in the dark, kind of feeling guilty that we would celebrate something. But, but here's how the Bible works. Here is how God works. In the midst of the kind of humility that Advent calls for, namely the recognition that we need something. But we have a word from God. We have promise upon promise upon promise um, that God will not leave us in that need. He won't simply leave us with that lack or in that darkness, but light will come. Forgiveness will come. Justice will come. Peace will come. So Advent is a season of living in the tension, the recognition that we lack something, but also the confession that our God has spoken. He's made promises to us, and he's never a liar. But most of all, Advent is about anticipating how all of those promises are fulfilled in Jesus. And a lot of what we're meant to do during Advent is to remember what it is that we lack, to remember what it is that we long for. 
What are we thirsting for and hungering for um, in the midst of this season? Um, I don't think there's any denying that we live in a world marked by hunger. And not necessarily the hunger for food, but, but a kind of desperation for something. Um, and, and it feels a bit schizophrenic at times. There's, there seems to be a longing um, for more and more stuff. There seems to be a longing for something along the lines of justice. There seems to, to be a longing for peace. There seems to be um, the longing uh, for a football game win. Um, there, there's just constant need and longing in this culture. And so one of the things I want us to do today is to, to sit with John the Baptist the one who points away from himself to the coming fulfillment that Advent points to and anticipates and waits for. And I want us just to listen to him and learn from him what exactly it is that we should be waiting for and longing for. In other words, um, oftentimes I think our confusion is over what it is exactly that we lack, what it is that we need. So I want to listen to John the Baptist this morning. I'm going to kind of dive into the background of who he is and what he shows up to say and to do. And then I particularly want us to listen to one thing he tells us we need. Why must Jesus come? So that's where we're going this morning. Um, and first, let's consider John the Baptist. Who is this guy? Um, as he's been called Creepy John, um, who is creepy John? Um, John uh, is um, a man who shows up uh, at Bethany beyond the Jordan. So at the Jordan River, um, in the direction of Bethany, kind of um, along that road, he, he would have been um, around 21 miles east of Jerusalem, where most of his ministry was taking place. And so um, Jerusalem at the time was the, the political and religious center um, of, um, and the center of absolute political corruption um, at the heart of all of Israel at the time. Uh, we, we've talked about this in the past, but, but in the north, in Galilee, you had largely kind of an entrepreneurial, um, kind, of bur- um, kind of burgeoning, growing economy. Um, you had lots of businesses, you had lots of building you had, that was kind of where the main trade route from the east to Rome would run through. Um, and so you had um, a, a kind of kind of a wild west atmosphere up in Nazareth and Galilee um, where Jesus begins um, his ministry. Um, but then down in Jerusalem, you had an enormous amount of bureaucracy. You had an enormous amount of corruption. Um, most of the economy, um, if it could be called an economy down south, was rooted in political favors. It was rooted in corruption. It was rooted in um, uh, kind of the extortion of the poor. Um, It it was a a very, very dark and corrupt place. Um, And yet it also was the center of power, of religious esteem, um, of those who believed they were righteous, of those who believed um, that they were the children of Abraham, that they had the promises of God, um, that they were the ones, the, the caretakers of the law of God, and therefore the caretakers of justice and righteousness and goodness. And in the midst of that scene, right in the midst of that culture, just far enough out of town um, that it was a long day's walk, except for some of you who run marathons, which is dumb, and then it was just a little jog. 21 miles to the east, you had John the Baptist down by the river, um, as the song goes, proclaiming repentance 
the coming of the kingdom of God. And you had lots and lots and lots of people from Jerusalem and the surrounding towns going out to John to hear him speak and to be baptized in the river. Baptism. An interesting thing. A lot of people thought of John the Baptist as kind of the first baptizer, um, as this kind of inventor of a new thing. That would be a misnomer. John the Baptist actually was taking something within the Jewish tradition um, and reappropriating it, reframing it um, in a relatively scandalous way. And you see, baptism was uh, regularly practiced, and it was practiced in Jerusalem, and it was something uh, necessarily done by, say, if you were a pagan family, um, you're a Roman family, um, you'd worship the Roman gods, um, and suddenly you become convinced of the Jewish God and his law, um, and you want to come into and enter into uh, the temple, you want to be able to come at least into the court of the Gentiles, uh, you want to worship this God, you, you want to um, believe this God and obey his law, um, you had a major problem. You were covered with idolatrous cooties. So in order for you to be able to come into the temple, in order for you to come into and live among the people of God, in order for you to be declared a God-fearer, um, you, had, you and your entire family, key point, um, you and your entire family, your children, your babies, uh, particularly your babies, uh, would be taken to, um, in Jerusalem, there was a place you would go down into the water and you would come out the other side and all of your idolatrous cooties would be washed off and you would be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Um, you would be counted as a God-fear, as one who belongs tangentially, maybe as a second-class citizen, but belonging to Israel. Your sins, your idolatrous sins would have been washed from you. Now, what is John doing? John goes to the River Jordan and he proclaims a baptism for the forgiveness of sins and he calls everyone, including Jews, to come to the waters and be baptized. Do you see the scandal? In the midst of the people that assumed themselves to be pure, assumed themselves to be holy, assumed themselves to be righteous, he announces right smack dab in the middle of it and crowds are coming to him. And he's saying it's not enough for you to go to the temple. It's not enough for you to participate in what's going on in the temple. Um, It's not enough for you to be baptized at the temple. It's not enough for you to listen to these Pharisees, these Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the temple authorities, the scribes. No, you must come and believe and be washed just like you were a pagan because you are. That's what John the Baptist is doing. And that's why the baptizer was such a problem to the temple authorities in Jerusalem. Because he essentially said, your authority is done. Your power to forgive sins is done. It doesn't work. So you must come be baptized. I want you to look with me at verse 19. And this is the section that precedes the section we're going to spend most of our time on. 
This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him. Interesting here. Priests, the Levites are kind of the, remember we've talked about them before. They're like the ninja priests. Then you have the priests. The Levites were the main ones who sang and also wielded weapons. We need Levites again. So to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Here's who John says he is. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 40. He says, which is uh, the text that we read for our call to worship. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Then they asked him, and why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. What does, Isaiah, what does John the Baptist say about who he is? Well, he quotes an old passage from Isaiah chapter 40. And Isaiah 40, love it if you turn there, um, is an extremely interesting text. Um, I, I don't know how much you know about the book of Isaiah, but the book of Isaiah is essentially broken into two parts. Um, you have chapters 1 through 39, which is an announcement of anticipation of extreme judgment against the people of God. Um, it's one of the, uh, if, if you go through a kind of read the Bible in a year plan, um, Isaiah 1 through 39 is a dark season for you. Um, it is dark. It is God saying, because of your idolatry, because of your sin, because you've dismissed my law, because you haven't listened to my word, because you haven't worshipped me, because you've gone after other gods, I'm going to come and destroy you. But then a turn happens. It's a turn so radical that most Bible scholars, particularly in, in uh, more liberal circles, say that there's no way that the author of Isaiah 1 through 39 could have possibly written um, Isaiah 40 in the back half of Isaiah. And I say to them, you don't know what God's like. You see, in Isaiah chapter 40, a turn happens. That turn begins right off the bat in verse 1, where, where for chapter upon chapter, God has been chastising his people and promising judgment against them. In chapter 40, he begins by saying, comfort Comfort, my people, says your God. And then as a sign that that comfort is coming, it says in verse 3, and this is what John says he is. Verse 3 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So John says he is that voice, but take note of what he's announcing as that voice. His announcement is God is coming. God is coming to comfort his people. God is coming to restore his people. God is coming to draw his people back to himself. Um, God is coming to, to, to cast away all of their sins. God is coming to bring peace. God is coming to bring justice. God is coming to bring righteousness. God is coming to put away all of your idols. John says, this is who I am. 
the voice declaring the coming of God. And then in the very next turn, we have our text. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. Again, you should imagine here a pretty massive crowd. John was a spectacle. Um, People wanted to see a spectacle. And in the midst of the crowd, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. This is, whether we recognize it or not, the deepest need of the world. Let me make it more personal. This is, whether you recognize it or not, your deepest need. Somehow, some way, your sins would be taken away. And I want you to take note of that phrase. He doesn't merely say, Behold the Lamb of God who forgives the sin of the world. He doesn't just say, Behold the Lamb of God who atones for the sin of the world. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But what we need, what, what our world what our society, what we as individuals, what our families, what our marriages need above everything else is that our sins would be taken from us. I say that of the world and I mean it. Flip with me over to Romans chapter 1. doing a lot of Bible today. Um, In Romans chapter one, uh, you have, uh, it was several years ago now, but we went through Romans and we spent some painful time in Romans chapter one. Romans one, you have Paul's kind of summary description of um, not just kind of one sect of religious belief, but his assessment of the entire world. And I believe at the heart of this chapter is perhaps the most insightful critique and analysis of the nature of society, um, the most pre- precise and clear critique or description of um, not just kind of some theological condition we have, but, but I would say his description of why the world feels crazy all the time. And, and here's what I mean. He, he goes on and describes the fact that the wrath of God is being revealed right now. There's a problem in the world called sin, and the wrath of God is now known. It's being revealed, it's being seen as it's being poured out on the world. And the result of that wrath is that people are crazy. What do I mean by crazy? It feels rather harsh. Why would I say the world is nuts? It says so. It says people do things. They desire things. They want things. He uses primarily the example of 
of sexuality and homosexuality is kind of his core example. But at the heart of it is a pattern that's unraveling in all of society and not just society at large. It's actually happening in individual people's lives um, in which they are being handed over to desires they have for things that will destroy them. Like if you persist in doing something that will kill you, and you keep going harder and harder after it. That's crazy. It's like if I have a hammer and I hit myself in the finger with the hammer because I had an inexplicable urge to hit something with a hammer. Sometimes you have, right? Like after an Army-Navy football game. And you hit yourself in the finger with a hammer, and you do it once. That's a little crazy, but it's not, it's not super crazy. But if, after hitting yourself in the f- finger with the hammer, you proceed to go, you know what, that was terrible. It was awful. My finger's broken. I'm not going to be able to type or point at things very well. You know what? I'm going to do it again. I have this inexplicable urge to hit myself in the finger again. And so then you do it. Now, because it was already broken, it hurts even worse when you hit it the second time. You think, you know what? That was really terrible. That was even way worse than the first time. But you know what? I have this inexplicable desire to hit myself in the finger Again, and so you do it again and again and again. That's Paul's description of the world. You want to do things that destroy you, things that are shameful, things that are gross, things that are embarrassing, things that are dark and wicked, and you just keep doing them. Then, and here's what I want you to take note of in particular. Starting in verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And here's the part where I think there's more insight into understanding our world and most of its political movements. Though they know God's righteous decree, the interesting thing about this, though they, who is they? Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1 is it's every single human being on earth. That's wild. Not just people who've heard the Bible. Not just people who sat under teaching on Sunday morning and heard a weird story about breaking your finger with a hammer. Everybody. Tribal person buried in the forest of Papua New Guinea knows this. 
It's at the root of all human beings, this knowledge. Whether they claim to not believe in God or they claim to believe in God, whether they've heard it from the Bible or they haven't heard it from the Bible, Paul's claim is every human being on earth knows that this crazy stuff, this dark, wicked, evil stuff um, that we chase after again and again and again, um, uh, devising increasingly disturbing ways of doing evil things, every single human being is haunted by the knowledge that such things deserve death. that no matter what kind of coats of nice color and weird storytelling we put to it, when we acknowledge and see the fact that people die, we know deep down in our hearts, we deserve it. And such knowledge is too terrible for us to live with. Rene Girard, Rusus Rushduni, two very different thinkers, would both point to the whole structure of revolution and murder and the craziness of the entire history of the world and society and say it underneath all of it, um, guiding and directing and driving all of it is the the sheer weighty acknowledgement that we deserve to die and we're doing anything we can to escape that guilt. At a society level, it drives our politics. It it drives our, our constant push for different forms of justice. It has been the story of the last five years in our country um, uh, with, with critical race theory and, and, and other, such, um, other such movements in our society. Um, it is all trying desperately to say, um, we as a society are guilty. We don't want to deal with God. We don't want to deal with God's description of why we're guilty. And so it, we, instead, we will make up our own and we, um, uh, like Lady Macbeth, will, will look at our hands and say, out damned spot. And we get rid of this guilt. So we devise complicated systems of oppressed and the oppressor. Find desperate ways devoid of God's mercy to atone for our sins. And we find ourselves on an endless rat wheel unable to find any relief. It's not just our society. It's you and me. How will you be rid of your lusts? How can you be washed that angry word you spoke to your child this week? How can you be free from the pride that colors every interaction you have? How can you be cleansed 
of the envy that, that, that creates strife between you and your neighbor, between you and your sister, between you and your brother. How can we be cleansed? The errant words spoken in haste that Jesus says we will have to give an account for. Our pride, our vainglory, our arrogance, our selfishness. How will we be washed from it? I think the acceleration of our lives has largely been driven by this desperate need to escape. To escape the guilt that if we just pause for a moment, all of us feel. It weighs on us and it weighs on us with a crushing, crushing sort of weight that that leaves us unable to breathe. And, and, and for those of you here maybe who are visitors, you don't know Christ, I want to warn you about something. Most people use religion this way. As a kind of ladder to climb, to escape guilt. And that produces horrifically self-righteous people. And it's the exact opposite of what Christianity is. People will pray before meals. People will um, pursue and show up at religious services. They'll read their Bibles in the morning. Um, Not because they treasure Christ. Not because they marvel at the grace that's been given to them in Jesus. Because as a desperate attempt to do just enough to escape guilt. This is at the heart of, of so much of what used to be called the self-help movement. I don't even know what it's called anymore. Um, but this, uh, this kind of uh, regular assertion, you see it all over social media, of I am enough. No, you're not. And the fact that you have to keep yelling that or shouting that or writing that as banners over your head, um, it's like you're trying to scream and, and, and hold your fingers in your ears and say, I'm enough, I'm enough, I'm enough, I'm enough, I'm enough. And if you ever stop for just a second to consider, you go, I'm not. I'm envious. I'm arrogant. I steal. I hate. I'm filled with pride. This is at, I think, the heart of of a kind of Christianity um, that's become very, very popular in in our day that reduces down to, um, look, God just loves you exactly the way you are. And stripping Christianity of its call to holiness, stripping Christianity of the most crucial aspect of everything that it is, namely that God, despite who you are, despite what you've done, he has dealt with your sins and forgiven you. Loves you. It's into that that John says... Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
There are two references here. First to Exodus 12 and tied into the Passover feast. The lamb that was slaughtered, its blood put over the doors of a household such that the wrath of God coming into Egypt that night would pass over Israel. It also um, ties into the annual atoning sacrifice when a lamb, um, two of them, uh, a lamb was slaughtered, the sins of, of the people, and a goat was sent out um, carrying sins of God's people away. And then also the reference to Isaiah 53. The servant, the suffering servant who would come being crushed by the wrath and the judgment of God against our sin, though he had committed no sin. So John, with that background, clearly in mind and in view, points at Jesus Christ and he says, behold, the Lamb of God doesn't just forgive your sins, but takes away the sins of the world. In Advent, we recognize our need. The need that all of us have in this room. The need that someone would take our sins away. That someone would help us to escape this guilt and this shame. And in the midst of that darkness, that longing, that need, John the Baptist shouts to us, pointing to Jesus, pointing to this baby born in a manger, pointing to the one we long for during this season. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news you desperately need. And it is the only grounds, the only grounds by which any of us stand to look upon Jesus, to treasure Jesus, to hope in Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray.